0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. It's that time of the year. The sights and sounds are all around us to get us into that festive spirit. But what about the smells? On this special episode, we're going to take a look at how aromas affect us and how they can make or break our holiday season. We'll find out how they make us comfortable or uneasy and in some cases, how they can transport us back in time and evoke strong emotions. And in our SaaS class, you'll learn that the right combination of fragrances might get you to open not just your mind, but your wallet. I'm Jason the Germ Guy, Tetro, and I'm gonna take you on a scent odyssey in which the nose knows best. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Stockings on the mantle, carolers at the door, a candlelit menorah, the seven Harambis, a community parade with pinatas, and let's not forget the aluminum pole in the airing of grievances. These sights and sounds immediately bring to mind the holiday season. It doesn't matter if it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Las Posadas, or Festivus. These symbols remind us of the most wonderful time of the year. Unless you're George Costanza. But we have more than our eyes and our ears giving us the sense of warmth that comes with the festive season. We also have our noses. Think about it. Pine trees, cinnamon, nutmeg, oranges, cloves, gingerbread, peppermint, and don't forget incense. As soon as we detect these odors, we immediately can tell the holidays are upon us. You may not realize it, but our sense of smell, scientifically known as olfaction, is probably the most important in our daily lives. Research has shown that an odor can immediately grab our attention and compel us to look for the source. Even infants as young as four months old can be captivated by a smell. Depending on the strength of the scent, we can be held in curious rapture as we try to find the origin. Now while this may be scientifically called cross-modal association between olfaction and vision, it might be better explained by this question. Who cut the cheese? Research on the influence of smell has shown that it can have a very powerful effect not just on our eyes but our behavior as well. It's called a non-conscious effect, and it has been hardwired in our brains to get us to act a certain way based on certain aromas. If there is a pleasant scent, we tend to move towards it, like a bakery or the kitchen while something is cooking. If, however, the odor is, well, stinky, we tend to move away from it. Imagine walking past a dumpster filled with sour milk. You may unconsciously arc your walking path away from the source. But how do we know which particular smells are going to work in our favor to bring about a high level of comfort? Well, we just use the hedonic tone scale, of course. Okay, you've probably never heard of this, so let me break it down for you. A hedonic tone descriptor tells you how a person will relate to its scent. The scale ranges from minus five to plus five and can provide perspective on which individual scents may be able to provide comfort or annoyance. Now here are a few examples of scents associated with the holiday season and where they stand on the scale. Cinnamon, 2.54. Lavender, 2.25. Clove, 1.67. Cherry, 2.55. Vanilla, 2.57, and then there's cooked poultry, like that turkey dinner. It comes in at 2.53. Just to give you an idea of the other end of the scale, ammonia comes in at minus 2.47, old sweat is minus 2.53, and then there's cat urine, which comes in at a whopping minus 3.64. Obviously, you want to have pleasant smells during the holidays, but how do we equate certain scents with the festive spirit? Are we programmed to feel this way? Or is it more of a conditioned response brought about by years of tradition? To help me answer that, I have Dr. Leslie Cameron on the line. She's the chair of the Psychological Science Department at Carthage University in Kenosha, Wisconsin. She's also an odor detection specialist. Dr. Cameron, let's just get straight into olfaction. How does it work?
1: Well, that's a great question, and all sensory systems basically start by taking information from the environment, passing it through some sense receptors that are in a sense organ, and passing that information on to the brain for processing. And the information here um, is in the form of volatile molecules that are detected by what we call olfactory sensory neurons in the olfactory epithelium. All sounds complicated at the top of the, the nasal cavity, at the top of the nose. Um, And so we get this information coming in, um, received by uh, receptors and kind of a lock and key mechanism. And that information gets then transduced into a code that the brain can understand. So all sensory systems work basically like that. They're taking information in through um, through a sense organ and then onto the brain. Olfaction is a little bit different in the sense that it actually has um, some direct connections from that early the early stages of processing directly to areas in the brain that are involved in memory and emotion. So that's the so-called limbic system. Um, and unlike other sensory systems like vision or um, audition, um, the olfactory system actually connects directly to those parts of the brain are processing um, emotion and memory, which is related to Um, I think some of the things that your audience might be interested in knowing about olfaction.
0: I want to get to this study you did back in 2013. You were actually showing that identifying smells actually takes some time, and we may not always get it right. I mean, how hard is it to be able to recognize a smell, maybe when you first smell it, but then later on in life as well?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's really um, it's interesting and it's actually somewhat controversial in the uh, olfactory literature and in, the, in our community. So um, what's not controversial is that the olfactory system is relatively sluggish compared to systems like vision. Um, so we know that the system is a little bit slower than other systems. But um, it turns out that we're really quite poor at recognizing, or actually I should say at naming odors. So unlike in vision where you look at a picture of something and you can say what it is, when you smell an odor outside of any kind of context, it can be really difficult. So I love to do this demonstration with my students. We, um, I'll bring in a, a bunch of um, jars or cups or something with common odors in them. So common substances like chocolate or ketchup or baby powder. And I asked the students to take a sniff, don't look inside, and try and place a name on that odor. And and that's essentially what we did in that 2013 paper that you're referring to. And what we found there and what I find in my classroom all the time is that people have a really hard time naming even quite common things. So and if you take kind of a random set of odors, you'll get about 50% correct at naming the odors. So some things like chocolate or cinnamon, things that are relatively common, people can name. But things like um, shoe polish or honey, not so much. Um, and often what, what happens is it's not so much that you don't recognize the odors it's that you can't put a label on it. And we call this the tip of the nose phenomenon where you're smelling an odor. You say, mm, I, I mean, I, I know that smell. I know I've smelled that smell before. But have an inability to kind
0: of name it. That, that's funny because I'm just thinking about you know multimodal association and the non conscious effects of which I've already talked about, and and how you know they all work together to be able to help us to identify, and and now you're just talking about the tip of the nose of like wow that that just sounds like such a great terminology.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And and so yeah, so that I think you're right. This multimodal stuff is really important. Being able to Um, To see what you're smelling, that that is obviously an important cue for us because normally um, we do have context or we do have other sensory systems that are helping us to be able to, to determine what something is. So I think we often don't recognize just how hard it is to actually tell what something is outside of its context.
0: So really what this means is that you don't really have to know a smell to be able to react to it.
1: Absolutely not. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think that what your olfactory system is doing, this is what's controversial about the naming um, actually is that Um, Some people think uh, that naming odors is an important part of the olfactory system, and I would disagree with that. I really think that naming is not important. It doesn't matter what the thing is. What your olfactory system is good for is telling you, is this something that's good or bad? Should I avoid it? Should I get close to it? Should I put it in my mouth and eat it? Um, And so you just need to, you don't really need to know exactly what it is in order to know what to do with that Um, with
0: that smell. One of the reasons that I actually wanted to talk to you is because you literally wrote the review on how we learn to recognize or, or name smells as we grow up. And there was a line in there that really got me thinking, you know, our ability to detect odors actually gets better as we get older, which I find kind of weird because usually as we get older, everything kind of falls away. But there is one particular scent that apparently doesn't matter how old you are, you're always going to be able to recognize it. And that is um, bubblegum. What's with that?
1: Yeah. So I think um, there's clearly development in in odor perception. We get better with age. And what we mean by that is, in, in children, children get better as they um, as they grow up. So, if, in the study that you're referring to, we looked at um, children from six to up through college age, and their overall ability to name or to identify odors. In that task, it's it's a little bit different because you're if you're asked to just come up with a name, it's really hard, right? And that's where what what we talked about already. But in the task that you that um, was done in this study. Um, people are uh, scratching and sniffing, just like those kind of things you did when you were a kid. So scratch and sniff and sniff it. And then you're given a set of odors, and you have to choose which one. And under those conditions, people do much better, um, and children get better as they get older. In that particular study, bubblegum was one that they recognized even, you know, at a, at an early age and, of course, continued to be able to um, recognize later. I should say not recognize but to identify because they could say it was familiar without being able to say um, what it
0: is. When we talk about the holidays, we know that there's a number of different types of um, odors that are associated with it. But we may not be able to name them all, but we'll recognize them as being part of the holidays. And I'm kind of curious you know, does that really come down to exposure? Like, we smell them all the time during the holidays, and therefore we associate them with the holidays. Are we being conditioned to know what these scents are without necessarily having to be able to name them?
1: This is something that psychologists think about in lots of contexts. The question of whether or not something, some behavior is innate. Is it inborn? Is it something that you're born with? Or is it something that you learn to experience? And the answer is almost always it's some combination of both. But I think actually in olfaction, there's more evidence leaning to the side of it's, it's really about conditioning. It's really about learning. So unlike something like basic taste, like sweet and salty, sour, these things that you kind of are born with a, um, an innate preference, um, I, think it's, I think the evidence points to it being less the, that's less true in olfaction. And so we really learn to like or dislike things. And some of the ways that we know that is, we know that, uh, for example, the preferences for babies, um, preferences for odors Um, is different for babies and adults. So, for example, there's data that shows that this is a little bit gross, but that babies don't mind the smell of feces, where adults um, obviously do. There are also cultural differences, and one of my um, favorite examples of that is the odor of wintergreen, which here in the U.S. people um, find to be a pleasant odor. But at least um, when this uh, a study was done in the sixties showed that that same odor was found to be unpleasant in the u k because it was associated with medicine. so there are there are things that are happening in experience. it could be culturally, it could be on an individual level. We definitely know there are individual preferences for odors, some of which might have a genetic component, but I think largely have to do um, with our um, with our experience. what we've been Um, conditioned, as you say, but really just by exposure, by the fact that you're being, you're encountering these odors and you're encountering them in a particular context.
0: Olfaction is well known to be influential on how we perceive, react, and move within an environment. But it can also have an effect on our mental state. The presence of various odors can bring up old memories and even invoke emotional responses. Imagine the smell of your grandmother's perfume or your grandfather's cologne. You may be instantly transported back to their home. How about a food you used to love as a child but rarely encounter anymore? Just having a whiff can get your mouth watering. One of my personal favorites is the smell of Escherichia coli, as it brings me back to my first lab and the joy I felt starting in the wondrous field of microbiology. Hey, they don't call me the germ guy for nothing. This occurrence is known as the Proust phenomena, or involuntary memory. It happens with select odors that have had a significant impact on our lives. These privileged scents could be called autobiographical aromas as the moment we detect them, we are jettisoned back to a different time and place. Here's where it gets awesome. When compared to a visual or auditory clue, the nose knows better. People have a more emotional response to the smell and can bring up even greater details of the events in which that odor was most vividly detected. While this may seem fantastic for the holiday season, there is one slight drawback. The same effect happens for all memories associated with that odor. If the aroma originally made the person sad or upset or angry or scared, it could lead to an unwanted outcome. This has been seen in cases of olfactory triggered post-traumatic stress disorder. Figuring out how to use the Proust phenomenon to improve our chances at a happy holiday season is not an easy task. It requires more than just an understanding of chemistry and neuroscience. You need more depth thanks to a certain type of study. Thankfully, I have Dr. Anne Sophie Barwich on the line. She is an expert in the historical context of our biological ability to use smells for remembering our past. She's a visiting assistant professor in the Cognitive Science Program at Indiana University, Bloomington. However, I prefer her Twitter handle as a job description. She's at Smolosopher. Anne, what sense come to mind when you think about the holiday season?
2: I'm from Germany. Christmas for me is blue wine. You smell it at every corner at the market. And it permeates your experience. But also if you go home, there's the smell of pine trees. Like if you've got your Christmas tree, there's food smells, uh, especially with your family cooks. In my case, there's also burnt potatoes uh, from my mother because she forgot the timer. So they're good and they're bad.
0: When you talk about sort of the, the smells and how they affect the brain, you, you have a bit of a different approach. Uh, instead of the simple stimulus-response model that we normally associate with respect to science, uh, you have taken a bit more of a philosophical perspective. After all, you are the smellosopher. One of the most intriguing things that I've read from you happens to be this idea that odor may not actually be odor. In other words, you may smell something, but it may not be actually what you're smelling, and that it's really based on perception. Can you explain that a little?
2: It's, it's basically to do with context. The way we learn smells and the way we recognize smells uh, is all based on context, the encoding and the retrieval. And when we smell something, what we detect are small molecules, small airborne volatile molecules, and hundreds of them. You're constantly surrounded by hundreds of them. And your brain learns to associate certain groups of molecules with certain perceptions. And also the recollection depends on what are you encountering in parallel. So let's say I give you two two oils. And one I call parmesan and the other I call vomit. It's pretty clear which one you will prefer. But what if I tell you actually that they're both the same? They're both butyric acid. You can can do the same experiment with many smells. I give you patchouli. And if I name it incense, you will have a different experience than if I name it musty basement, for instance. Uh, if it's somehow, you either have something more incense-like or something that is musty and moldy. So it's quite often what we smell is our association with that information. And it's not so far away from vision, if you think of it. We just think that with vision... We're experiencing everything at once. Quite often, that's not the case. Our brain creates a narrative of the information we're encountering because there simply is too much of it. And you see it in cases like change blindness, where we don't recognize that small things have changed because we didn't focus on them. It's similar with smart There's too much information. So we reconstruct in our mind as a perception what we're focusing on or what highlights our perception. It's much more information that. Otherwise,
0: we could process. Does that mean, then, that some odors are more evocative than others? And, and, you know, are Christmas smells more, you know, inclined to making us think about memories? Or is it just something that we're trained?
2: Uh, So it is something that I would say we're trained to recognize. So it depends what smells you smelled when you were kids. They will elicit lots of memories later to smell them again. But it's not the smell as such, but it's not the chemical as such. It's that we have learned to associate that chemical with a certain smell, with a certain memory. And if you have something like that, we all recognize similar smells. It seems to be the case, at least. There's like grandma's kitchen, for instance. But that's not the same odorants. It's not the same physical information. It's the same social information. And we just have uh, different individual instantiations of And there are some smells which are might, be, might be more, you could say, powerful, especially bad smells. Let's say uh, if you would smell a which smells like, it sounds like, mainly like decaying flesh, that's very unpleasant and it's evocative of lots of images. But these are just a few smells that work like that. Otherwise, there's just too much out there. If every smell would do that, we would go mental.
0: It's funny you say that because it brings me to this... Um Passage that I saw in one of your publications about how we perceive Um, odors—you actually were quoting another researcher—but it just it made so much sense based on what you just said. And I quote: "This is like forgetting that the end product of apple trees is not apples; it's more apple trees." I just found that fascinating. We don't smell something to smell it; we do it to perceive what's going to come next in our experience.
2: Uh, Absolutely. So the quote is from Daniel Dennett. He's he's working, he did some great work on consciousness. And I love that quote precisely for that. Because what you perceive what's going on is more simply a snapshot in your brain. We don't have images that are static. Things are constantly happening. Our consciousness constructs a stream of consciousness. There's a whole narrative to it. And the same with smells. So you could see the smell, but it's never the same from moment to moment. It changes slightly. And what our brain is basically doing is deciding on, in these snapshots, you breathe and you've got shortened intervals, and it compares these short snapshots of physical information, saying, is it changing? Is the same smell or Is it different? Is there a concentration change? Is there a new chemical in there? And also, is that earlier familiar? And if it's familiar, do I think... This is a good context. Will this be good or will this be bad? There's a lot of what comes next, and smell is part of that
0: prediction, yes. If we then are smelling um, the joyous odors that we associate with wonderful memories of uh, the the holiday season, does that mean that because of that perception, we may be able to predict good times ahead?
2: At least we expect the times ahead, yes. If you've got a nice smell and you know that smell from previous memories, you kind of have a feeling for how the situation will be like. So definitely,
0: yes. So in a way, what you're saying is that we can use odors to be able to help, you know, develop the society that we're going to be in at that moment. Um, but I, I kind of have to counter you there because I, I've been in some very nice smelling places and the company was really horrid. Does this mean that maybe our noses might be working against us? Like, can we fool ourselves using odor perception into believing something is better than what it really is?
2: Well, actually, it's just telling you how good your sense of smell is, but you can't be fooled uh, in in, in a way that you can even even put some nice smellings in there. The noise will recognize something is nice, but it will not suddenly overpower everything and say, oh, suddenly the company's better. It will just make bad companies, perhaps, uh, a bit more acceptable in terms of it could be worse. Imagine you go into a horrendous meeting, it's boring. At least if somebody has a nice perfume, uh, you can focus on that and you can get a little bit better through the situation. But it's much more the other way around. If something smells bad, even if the company is good, you're not going to stay there. You can, mm-hmm. Let's say you meet somebody new and, and, and your partner's incredibly beautiful, smart, eloquent. If he or she smells horrendous, the deal is it off. That's the first thing. So the sense of smell is much more of a warning sense. Um, also, if you have, like in your case, uh, if you've got a horrendous company or something like that, a better smell might make it more tolerable, the situation, but it will not change your view on the company necessarily. It's, it's, it's much more about the situation in the whole context rather than a specific object. Unless it's, the smell is connected to that object, it will not change so much.
0: I know that during the holiday season, school is out, but you're gonna wanna stick around for this lesson. Today's class is all about knowing how scent is being used to make you spend money. Now, you may not have heard of cross-modal associations, hedonic tones, or the Proust phenomenon, but people who do research in marketing have delved deep into this area in the hopes of using odors to convince you to do something like make a purchase or opt for a certain type of service. Our guest teacher is one such researcher who is using the complex world of neuroscience and a tool known as event-related potential to figure out how odors can be used to help bring about an emotional response. The way she does it is not only awesome, but it may represent the future of focus groups. Her name is Dr. Jenny Lin, and she is an assistant professor at the University of California, Monterey Bay. Now, Dr. Lin, let's start with what exactly is event-related potential and, how are you using that to figure out how we interpret odors?
3: Mm, that's a great question. So ERP, you know, it's an application of EEGs. So what it does is it captures your know, time-specific electrical events that occur to, to, you know, stimuli. So it could be, you know, a scent. It could be, you know, a person sees an ad or hears a certain music or any cognitive events. So the you, you know, recall certain um, a situation or event that happened before, so memory could be, you know, ask to be part of a, to participate in a certain movement, so even motor skills, um, in that case. So there's going to be some electrical activity that's going to be triggered by any of those events. And that's going to be captured through, um, the machine, <laughs> through electrodes on, you know, the place on the surface of a person's skull. And so this whole process is not invasive at all because it's very natural every time, you know, anytime you, you think or do something, there's some electrical, some ERP, EEGs occurring. And so the, an ERP waveform is what we really study is made up of, you know, different components. And this all happens, you know, very quickly, instantly within, you know, we're talking about hundreds of milliseconds. So in a one to two seconds, you know, we're able to see a person's immediate response to a trigger, so a scent in this case. And so we analyze, we capture these waveforms, and then we analyze the shape, and size, and that can help us uh, infer you know, if people like the scent, if there's emotion um, triggered by it. And that way we can interpret uh, a person's perception, and behavior of, of this um, scent.
0: So, I have had e e g s in the past, and you know i got I got a chance to look at the chart at that long paper with all these really weird waves and everything, and they're telling me, "Oh, well, this is your alpha and this is your beta." Mm-hmm. But you interpret that by looking at those waveforms, and that will tell you essentially what somebody is. Fencing, whether it be through, you know, mm-hmm. touch or, or eyesight or, or through the nose. That, that, that's mm-hmm. really what you're doing, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And in this case, um, you know, I'm looking at, you know, particularly um, emotions. So and partly is because, you know, emotions is really strongly related to sense of smell, um, along with memory, and that has to do with, you know, how they are processed in the brain and the location of these um, structures in the brain. So they're very closely related to uh, to scent. So scent can be a trigger of, you know, a very, um, it could be a distant memory from a childhood. It could be, you know, the scent of your grandmother's kitchen from the cookies she bakes. So later along in life, when you encounter a similar scent, you know, those memories could be triggered instantly. It will bring you back um, almost to, you know, her kitchen in that case. So what
0: you're really saying is that those memories that we have from all the sense that we have gained over the years Mm -hmm. and and those memories and emotions that we have can be harnessed and used against us in a marketing sense? Is that really what you're saying?
3: (laughs) It could be against or in favor. So, and, you know, kind of tying back to, you know, the seasons and, you know, um, marketing. Well, Every year around this time, right, during starting in Thanksgiving, we sort of, you know, crave or at least I do, for um, pumpkin spice latte, right? That's sort of, you know, the smell, the taste. We're kind of programmed to have that expectation, you know, during certain times of the year. And, you know, Starbucks does a great job doing that. And also, you know, taco marketing, they make it, you know, very time limited. So only during this specific time of the year. Okay. And so part of that is also through, you know, these sensories, the memory that's associated with these sensories. So it brings back those um, memories you have um drinking from drinking um pumpkin spice latte from previous years, during the Christmas, during Thanksgiving, with friends, with family. So this also gets um programmed into your memory. Okay. So that's sort of a, a positive thing, right? <laughs>
0: Well, Uh, I I don't know if it's positive knowing that I'm being programmed (laughs) to want my PSL every fall. I don't know. Um, But I mean, when you think about it, I I guess from a marketing perspective, that's a great idea. But I want to bring something else up. And that is in a paper Mm -hmm. that you wrote that came out earlier this year, you even said that it's not Mm -hmm. really just about getting the right scent or programming the right scent. It's also about making sure that the scent gets to the right individuals. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I've never actually met someone who doesn't like a PSL in terms of that smell. They just get upset at the whole mm-hmm. commercialism fact. And I don't know very many people who <laughs> yes. don't like holiday scents. So, so how mm-hmm. is it possible that you could get it wrong by using certain types of scents? It, 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 mm-hmm. seems, it, it doesn't seem like it makes much sense of the scents.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so according to our research and um, um, other um, papers too, that it is, you know, clear to us, well, yes, most people enjoy the sense, you know, holiday, uh, Christmas, um, sea scent, and, you know, and that has to do with all the you know, memory and form we have with it. Now, coming back to the scent, however, there are um, individual differences in terms of, you know, some people are more sensitive to scent. And meaning that they could get, you know, negative, um, they can have negative reactions to it, you know, physically too, you know, coughing, sneezing, um, headaches, you know, dry throat, all these things. And so it becomes actually a negative experience for them. And there's about 20% of the people in this population that would actually fall into this category. And so talking about, you know, um, how marketers, you know, utilize scent, it could actually, you know, um, backlash in certain cases. So there are, you know, companies <laughs> that will have signature, signature scents they would pump into the store. It would be really strong. But we, we have found um, that it actually um, deters people, certain people, from shopping there instead because of how strong these perfume scents are. And um, so it could, in that case, um, be an example of misusing, overusing um, scent marketing and actually become um, a backfire for them.
0: It's interesting. Uh, Earlier in the show, I was talking about how sometimes, you know, if you're walking by a dumpster with sour milk, you'll unconsciously arc your way around that particular smell. Mm -hmm. And I realized just while I'm listening to you that I do the same thing around certain stores where the scents are just (laughs) too strong. I'm literally Mm -hmm. arcing my way around so I can minimize the amount of smell. But... Exactly. Those smells are not holiday smells, but you're saying that it doesn't matter what it is, there are people out there who essentially can just be overwhelmed and mm-hmm. not be not venture in, but really just mm-hmm. stay away.
3: Yes, yes. And that we have also confirmed and found in some of the interviews we've conducted. Exactly like you said, people, you know, pre plan their trip because they know, you know, they have to avoid the perfume counter in the department store or there's a Abercrombie and fish somewhere they have to avoid and walk on the opposite side of the the mall instead. So, yes, it does happen.
0: (laughs) All right. So, we now know that marketing companies will use sense to try and attract us, and there will be some people who may not fall for it, but for the rest of us who do fall for it, do you think that there's any way to be able to stop the urge to shop if we are immersed in these wonderful harmonious emotion gathering sense mm-hmm. or is this something where we literally are programmed and and we're helpless to be able to do anything about it
3: there are ways you can shop with a uh, with a list that way you kind of follow um what you have on the list and try to stick with it that helps right that impulse um that curbs some of the impulse buying that often happens okay. and um, there's also ways you know if we talk about you know self-control right there's also other um, ways to be just be mindful of you know these are certain things that could happen these are you know smells that are you know like the cinnamon they always come out their they're very um, delicious smells oh, <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> and so there, there are ways to kind of be mindful of that and that helps right and so for me I I know. Um I splurge once in a while, right? I know, you know, they are conducting some of these things and you know, pumping out, you know, the smell of um new fresh bread. But, you know, it's it's okay once every once in a while to, to go with it.
0: I smell what you're cooking. Well, that's it for this special episode of the Super Awesome Science Show. I hope it has given you a taste. I mean sniff. <laughs> of the importance of the nose in celebrating the holiday season. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at J.A. Tetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, you can email me at thegermguy@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to get more people to find the podcast. Have a great holiday season. And, as always make sure to show them some sass.